0: This is an ABC podcast. G'day, you're listening to Off Track, and I'm Ann Jones, and I've been thinking back to some of the great programs that we've made, and this one, in fact, these two, because it's a two-parter, these programs combine two of my absolute loves, the sounds of nature and history. These recordings are of the best percussionists in the world. Frogs. And they were all recorded by Professor Murray Littlejohn, a trailblazer in wildlife recording.
1: Motorboater. Uh, Helioporus. Field number 3, 19th of April, 1954, time 7.45. Location, Sheepwash Creek. Weather overcast with light showers. Now
0: over 85 years of age, Professor Littlejohn started his academic career in early 1950s in Perth in Western Australia. And it's sort of hard to imagine now that our phones can essentially be cinema cameras, but in the early 1950s... If you wanted to record the sound of wildlife, you had to be good at electronics.
1: In my final undergraduate year, my principal lecturer, he was working on frogs in southwestern Australia, and he said, these noises they make, we think they're quite important, but nobody knows much about them. And I said, maybe they could be recorded in some way if one had a portable recording device. I said I had an ongoing interest in electronics and I said, and I have a friend at the University of Western Australia and he is very interested in amateur movie photography and gets a magazine in which there is a description of how to make a portable audio recorder. And there were some design notes and illustrations. He said, maybe you could get somebody to make one for you. I had another friend who, whose father was a dentist but whose interest was in precision machining and electronics as a hobby. So we came to an agreement of a contract, I think 70 pounds, and they would use as the basis for the recorder a wind-up gramophone mechanism and build the electronics around that, using the 78 RPM turntable as the uh, sort of driving system. But to increase its momentum, they would add seven pounds of lead to the perimeter of it. (laughs) And one could keep winding it while the recorder was operating, so one could record more or less continuously using... quarter-inch open-reel tape.
0: Uh, roughly around what year was that?
1: Um, the recorder became operational in nineteen in March 1954. 17th of April 1954, 19th of April 1954, 19th of April 1954, of April 1954 24th of April 1954, air temperature, 50... What? And... Uh, I have a transcript sitting around somewhere where there is a little bit of recording made in that early period. Um, it's of a autumn-breeding Western Australian burrowing frog, the moaning frog. <laughs> Mona, field number 5, 19th of April, 1954, time 8.30pm, location Sheepwash Creek. And the all-up weight in the end was about 15 kilograms. Well, it was only portable in the sense of it didn't need mains powering. So our system of operation was to put the recorder on the seat of the car, a vehicle, and then to use... 50 metres microphone cable and to wander out try and locate a frog within range and then record in that manner and uh, I would sort of shout back voice announcements I was far enough away that I had to relay my messages through the microphone yeah (laughs) getting any of that? Yeah. Now, the operator for much of the time was my late wife, Patsy. Between us, we had a system that worked quite well. <laughs> they cut when you how have, have much? Yeah. Right.
0: In the early 1950s, right at the very start of Professor Littlejohn's career, while they were grappling with the information on how to build a recorder that could run in a bush location, they weren't even sure, at that stage, if the sounds that they recorded could be measured in any useful scientific way. So, they called in a couple of favours, including one from the ABC.
1: Now, this is quite important, yes. This takes us back to 1953, and Bert Main, this man who became my supervisor, he was able to arrange with the ABC Outside Broadcasting Unit, which was a huge fan then, <laughs> to go out under his direction to a place where the frogs were calling and to do make a recording there and then. We were, what, what would we do with these recordings well then another contact at the CSIR it would be then wouldn't it a man called mr. Muncie, who is uh, in I like guess building acoustics he took some of this recording and processed it through a cathode ray oscilloscope and described how we could take measurements from the call from what we'd call now a waveform of the call. So we knew as as my work started in the beginning of 1954 that we had a method that could be used. So we were able to get enough money to buy an oscilloscope. But of course one needs to, to record the image and that requires a special kind of camera, one that is a continuously recording camera. <laughs> and. We did have one such device, so that got allowed us to get 35mm strip with the waveform of the audio recording on it. And that was very tedious because one had to process, say, 10 metre lengths of 35mm stock and that sort of thing, or longer...
0: So to be clear, the young Murray Littlejohn and his colleagues manufactured that recorder, which recorded onto a big roll of tape, and then they ran that tape through an oscilloscope, which made the sound into a wavy, squiggly line on a tiny little screen. But it wasn't a computer. It didn't have a printout. So they lined up a film camera to the screen to film the long squiggly line and then that film was processed and then they could measure all of the pips and the pops and the creaks and the squeaks of the frog calls and analyse them scientifically. Though it wasn't a seamless integration
1: of technology. The tape speed or transport speed is critical to the whole study because variations there would lead to variations in our experimental method. Oh, I would place where a frog was calling in water and I had located it i had a spike so I would drive into the <laughs> into the substrate into the muddy soil and arranged my microphone with the clamps, so I pointed at the frog and back off and I remember with my my quite expensive bay m eighty eight hypercardioid dynamic microphone, I'm listening in you know croak, 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 creak, groan, hiss, glug, glug, glug. <laughs> and, and what had happened is the stand had given way and my microphone would, had gone into the water head first. And that was kind of sad. I think I only lost one microphone that way in my history. Sometimes we had to work with frogs that were floating, and for that we used a shotgun microphone with a windshield on it. Vero's tree frog, Latoria veroi veroi, with Ranadella signifera in the background. But in that case we would be within a metre or two of the frog, and Mainly, we'd be using a shotgun microphone to reduce the effect of neighbouring frogs, and uh, get a still need to get as close as we could to the reco- the subject frog. The variegated river tree frog, Litoria citropa. Crickets are calling in the background. The call of this species consists of two distinctive parts.
0: Now why would it be that you would want to get a recording of just one frog calling at a time?
1: Well, that would give us a good material for a subsequent audio analysis with that low background level. Hmm.
0: So you weren't just recording frogs and listening to them, being able to see the waveform, this was what made you able to measure scientifically different aspects of frog calling.
1: This allowed us to quantify the signals. Of course, it was rather crude analysis in those days, but by getting a series of recordings of calls of different species, there was enough information there to be able to characterise each, the call of each species, and we could say, well, it is in fact a useful diagnostic feature for telling one species from another, yeah.
0: After a period of postdoctoral work in the USA, he returned to Australia to the University of Melbourne, which was his academic home for the rest of his career. And here's something of interest from 1968. At a quarter to ten, the Isidore Goodman Show will be here to entertain you. And at a quarter past ten, we continue our series Wildlife in Southeastern Australia with a talk on frogs by Dr Murray Littlejohn, the Senior Lecturer in the Department of Zoology at Melbourne University.
1: While most people are aware that frogs sing, you may have realized the complexity and significance of these sounds. I became interested in frogs and the study of animal sound, when it was suggested that I might investigate the value of frog calls... in recognizing one.: How does a frog create sound? Now So that they have a larynx, and vo- I'll simplify it then vocal cords but they also have another structure in their larynx called an arytenoid valve so they can got two things they've got the vocal cords that will generate the pitch of the signal and then the valve that will chop the airflow up into these pulses So what they do is they fill up their lungs then they <laughs> inflate a vocal sac, a balloon-like structure under the throat, and this is in fact a radiator, an acoustic radiator, and they become omnidirectional sources in general
0: as in they push sound out in all directions and it's a pretty effective little system. So let me reiterate and let's use the Southern Smooth Froglet as an example. So the body wall muscles push the air through the larynx which generates the pitch of the vocal cords. So to give you an idea of what that actually means, here's the same call lowered a couple of semitones like it's just gone down on a piano. And here's the original. It's about the note that the frog is singing. Then the cartilage inside the frog chops up that note to get pulses. Each of these notes is broken up into about 14 pulses a second. And if I slow one croaky note down, you can hear them. Here it is at normal pace again. And then here's one pulse. It's so fast you could easily miss it. But when they're next to each other, it makes a beautiful sound. The vocal sac under the chin of the frog vibrates and radiates that sound signal. And in the case of the southern smooth froglet, you get this repeating creaking call that decreases in duration every set.
1: Frogs are very sensitive to ground-transmitted vibration. They have superb seismic detecting systems. And it's through their arms and hands (laughs) hands, (laughs) on the substrate. And there's the, the bony connection up through inner ear. And there's another receptor there that's a special vibration receptor. So I would say to somebody who was helping... You can talk as much as you like, but don't move your feet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Some people are better than others at that.
1: Especially if it's getting cold. You <laughs> it <yet. clears throat> uh, cut and cancel is first recording on the first of the... Uh, oh, f- first, of, The frog seems to have moved away and we have no idea where it is as it's right near the water's edge. Cancel that one out. In later years, two of us would be working at looking for the frog and a third person using the recorder, and then we would use a triangulation technique to locate the frog using our headlights. That would usually show us position of the frog within a few centimetres. Then I would place the microphone about 20 centimetres from the frog. the great burrowing frog Helioporus australiacus with Limnodynastes perinae and Rana della signifera in the background.
0: Do frogs have ears that are similar to mammal ears? Um...
1: Uh... Now the ears, they don't have an external ear, so the eardrum is flush with the surface of the head. They have a bony connection to the inner ear and they, I'm, getting, I'm just generalising here, that they don't have a cochlea like humans have. They really only, is more or less like a, a tuned device to match the pitch of the call. That's incredible.
0: So Again, yeah, so in general, they are attuned to pick up the calls of their own species.
1: Yes, yeah, so it would, it's a bit hard to know, but it suggests that the frog's ear is not as sensitive as the human ear. Uh, That's cut number three. Uh, The first call is softer, and we think it's of the same frog, but it's better to ignore it and take the last group of loud calls out. We didn't record in rain because Mm. the pitter-patter on the microphone would be one thing, and also for a frog to have a raindrop, a small frog to have a raindrop land on its head would probably (laughs) be rather uncomfortable. (laughs) So they don't don't usually call. And if it's windy, they... uh, don't call either because they have a fairly freely evaporating body surface. If there's a reasonable wind speed they'll be evaporatively cooling and they'll be uncomfortable. Uh, the weather incidentally is intermittent light showers and a very cold wind from the west. High wind chill factor. Cut number one there are two frogs in this cut, we collected the loud one, calling a small eucalypt 30 centimetres above the ground and about 7 metres from the pond. Air wet 6.7 degrees Celsius. As as the temperature rises, the metabolic rate of the frog increases, so it it calls faster; the calls are shorter. That can be, and the pulse rates of the calls increases. The body temperature of frogs depends on their immediate environmental temperature, as they're uh, quote cold-blooded, mm-hmm. <laughs> or as we would say, uh, ectotherms, and. Um, It was important to measure the temperature in the environment of the frog at the time the recording was made as well, and to hope to try to correct for these variations. Uh, 29th of August 1993, um, recording started on reel 458 and continued on this reel 459, Niagara 4S recorder via M88 microphone modulometer to minus 4 dB maximum. Following for Murray Littlejohn's career spanned decades
0: and numerous advances in technology, Apollo, from reel-to-reel recording through cassettes and mini-discs through to cut. digital. He was well known no, for his meticulous well, and very seen. long notes so taken it's on in the land field.
1: under grass, air at 11.2 degrees Celsius in the presumed calling site.
0: Was this the start of bioacoustics?
1: Oh, certainly for Australia. Some people were working in other countries in different ways, perhaps studying bird calls, for example. But we didn't know much about that because some publications were very scarce and the tyranny of distance operated. Field number three, 19th of April, 1954, time 745, location Sheepwash Creek, weather overcast with light showers. Just cut it for a bit, will you? Uh, conclusion of recordings, 29th of August 1993, Mallacoota Airport, out.
0: It isn't just the longevity of his efforts to record Australian frogs that makes Murray Littlejohn's career exemplary. Not only did Murray Littlejohn's work play a role in us understanding how to use calls to identify frog species that are present at any one location, his work also decoded what the frogs are trying to say when they call. And what their calls can tell us about evolution on planet Earth. And you're going to hear more of that and more of these amazing recordings in the next episode of Off Track.
1: The common spadefoot toad, Neobatricus sardelli, with Limnodynastes Jumerilli, Neobatricus pictus and crickets in the background.
0: And just a note, if you've listened to this one on the radio, these recordings are seriously amazing. I thoroughly recommend listening on a good set of headphones if you get the chance. You can do that by downloading the podcast off track or finding us on the ABC app or online. You won't regret it. My name is Anne Jones and next week I'll be taking you somewhere else.
1: The locality is 10 miles south of Geranium, South Australia, 13th of September 1968. By by the light, by the light, by the light of the silvery moon, a silver paper moon. Ba-ba-ba-bum, by the light, it's going to do. I can't stand. <laughs> we can't go on. <laughs> oh, that'll be used in evidence. We're well, sorry about that interjection, but these things happen even in the best of recording studios.